This is Leaders Lens, the show that reveals what it really takes to become a great leader. I'm Jacob Espinoza, a Fortune 500 leadership consultant and director of creator success at Workweek. Let's go. And I've just tried to stay open as much as I can. And I think that's what I've found that building an organization from a place of openness and receptivity to the universe, to opportunities, to uh, everything that shows up in the moment is for me way more joyful than having this really clear vision of in five years, my company needs to look like this. And it's my job to wrench everything to make that happen. You know what I mean? We are back here at the Leaders Lens podcast with my friend from Twitter, Ryan Vaughn, former founder, CEO, now he's coaching executives, one of the, uh, the greatest minds of leadership that I've been able to connect with. So Ryan, I really appreciate you being here, available for the Great Leaders Lens audience. We, ha we have a lot of fun over here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And I always love starting these conversations, just hearing people's leadership journeys, because I feel like people take such different paths and becoming leaders and how they kind of create context around what it means to be an effective leader. What did your leadership journey look like? It's a good question. And there's so many different ways that uh, I can tell that story. So it's interesting that everybody has their own version of the story, but I probably have, uh, it could take any number of slices at it and it will be true, but very different. So I have been in uh, the technology industry for almost 20 years now, and I was a CEO for of a high growth or of various high growth startups for 15 of those years, two progressively larger failures, and then one that was successful, it scaled, and then eventually sold. That was called the Varsity News Network. So it was kind of like ESPN.com for high schools. And I think throughout the first, most of that journey, most of the first 15 years of my leadership journey, I had this idea in my head of who a leader was supposed to be. And it was oftentimes very situational or very dependent on what, where I was. So as an example, like if I was on stage, I had an idea that a, a leader should be able to ar articulate themselves very well, should be able to command the stage. I had this whole list of things that I had consciously or unconsciously that I was holding on to. But I also had the same thing for like my investors. You know, this is the leader that my investors want me to be. Please. And for my employees, this is the leader that my employees need me to be, right? And sometimes that's the same person. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes, you know, you're, you show up in two really different ways in those different contexts. And for me, the first, I'll say 13 years of the 15-year journey in that venture-backed startup role, I was just trying to do my best to live up to what I thought, who I thought I was supposed to be in, in that role. The, trying to be the perfect CEO for all of these people. And after 13 years, like it by degrees gradually, and then all of a sudden it got fucking exhausting trying to do all that. And that started to eventually take a toll. And at first it was just kind of like a, something feels off. I'm not quite as excited about work and about the things that I'm building as I once was. But eventually that led to a pretty big breakup with my company. And it was, it started out as a sabbatical. So I, I hired a CEO to take over for me. And then I was like, I'm going to go on a sabbatical. And it was supposed to be a two month thing, but eventually evolved into like an 18 month sabbatical and then just a departure from the company. A lot of that having to do with, you know, if I'm not the CEO of my company, which didn't feel that, that after I hired the CEO, that wasn't who I was anymore. Then I didn't have an answer of how to be and who to be. And so this idea of this image that I had of myself as this, the highest hard charging founder written up in magazines and successful and all this stuff, 
went away so quickly and sort of like in the the jet stream of that or in the wake of when that when that was you know when i stepped away i had to really dive deep into who i was as a person not just as a leader and i found that at the bottom of all of that diving after a lot of work and a lot of self-inquiry what i had to do was get comfortable with just being ryan not being Ryan, the guy that's building this thing, or Ryan, the guy that leads these people, or any of that stuff. Ryan, without the, you know, the bells and whistles that make me important and make me awesome, just being Ryan without all that stuff. And that was really uncomfortable at first, because especially when people are like, so what are you doing next? That's the question you get all the time when you take a sabbatical. I learned it. And, you know, it's easy and, and normal to have like that canned answer, like, well, I'm doing this and it's going to be amazing and it's going to go to the moon and, you know, da, da, da. Yeah. But with some reps and with some practice, I got to the point where I was just like, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm building some stuff over here and I'm building some stuff over here. And I got comfortable with that. And that opened up, and this all relates to the your question around leadership journey, is that that opened up for me the possibility of leading in an entirely different way. Leading not from trying to be the best leader I could be, but just leading from being myself as openly as I can and doing something that's worth doing. And I found that in the number of years since, like I've led one way and was materially successful that way. And then I've now I'm in the last like five years, I've been leading in a very different place. And I've found that it works every bit as well in in sort of growth ways, but then also in really like much meaningfully better in the types of relationships that I get to establish and the types of connections that I get to have with people and then they get to have with the organization. So my journey of leadership has really been one of, of identity, I think. And I've been thinking a lot about boundaries and what that means for as, as a parent, as, you know, somebody that that's running a business. And I feel like I hear, hear that in there as well, where it's almost like you're setting boundaries for yourself where I'm going to be me. I'm not going to step out of my box and like, you know, stretch myself past this certain point because I want to make somebody happy or I want to come across a certain way for a specific group or I try to present myself in in a certain manner, but I'm going to like give myself permission to just be me and be authentic in everything that I do. And it's so hard to get there. I mean, like like you talk about taking 18 months throughout your sabbatical and I'm sure you're still working through it. And myself, like something, I think anybody listening to this, if you're being honest with yourself, like you're on, you're in this journey constantly yeah. So just, just super powerful. What have been like the biggest changes you've noticed since you've been able to take that step in your own evolution? Well, so I want to touch on, you were talking about boundaries and I think it's worth just like touching on from my perspective, because I think there's, I would have thought about it really, really clearly. Like we talked about identity and the way that I thought of myself in a previous iteration of life is I thought of myself as the guy who was building this big ass company. Right. And because I had this image of myself as the guy who's building this big ass company, that sort of made all of life right now really simple. Cause it's like, I just got to do the things that are consistent with the guy who's building this big ass company. Right. So by having that definition of who I am really clearly defined, that created boundaries for me. It created like, I'm going to do these things and not these things. Right. And that's, you know, I think it's a really useful and effective way to sort of operate through the world. But when I spent the time and kind of in pretty deep self-inquiry, I got a chance to do all sorts of cool stuff there. I studied under a Zen master for a while. I got involved in a bunch of different versions of psychedelic work and stayed in a monastery. And there's just a bunch of 
it's like a doctorate in a whole bunch of different things, self-inquiry, we'll call it. But what I found was that any version of like a defined identity that I had for myself, for me personally, I would immediately start to try to be fully that. So whether it was a, full, a CEO of that's building these companies or whether it was a coach, like I, I am an executive coach now. And so if I allow myself to define myself as an executive coach, then the boundaries come out and the boundaries like, now I'm going to be this. And now I'm going to start investing in this way. And it all of a sudden builds this momentum. And that for me, that's what was so easy to lose myself in. So easy to lose myself in being this thing that is external to me, coach or an entrepreneur or, or anything. And so I think one of the big choices that I made along the way in, in like the last, and it's probably five years ago now, is when I stepped away from the CEO role, my first instinct was start another company. That's the that's what was consistent with my identity was to start another company right away. And that would have just recycled the process. I would have done the same thing and that would have been super easy. But the thing that I'm, I'm proud of myself that I did is I, I allowed myself to not define who I was and not establish those those guardrails of, I am this, therefore I'm limiting my life to this band. And I've just tried to stay open as much as I can. And I think that's what I've found that building an organization from a place of openness and receptivity to the universe, to opportunities, to uh, everything that shows up in the moment is for me way more joyful than having this really clear vision of in five years, my company needs to look like this. And it's my job to wrench everything to make that happen. You know what I mean? I think the big takeaway I want leaders to get from this is how important it is to focus on yourself. Like that metaphor of like putting the oxygen mask on yourself before you try to help the people around you is critical. But I feel like at the same time, a lot of times people feel guilty almost or selfish that they're taking time for themselves. When in reality, like you need to do that to be at the best for your people. Like I would assume that the people you're working for now are having or working for you right now are having a better experience because they have this version of Ryan that is more complete and fulfilled and is able to do the things that he needs to do to be at his best every single day for his team. Yeah, there's this dynamic that I deal with a lot in my work with CEOs now, which is called organizational transference. And it's the idea that the organizations that we build, the teams that we lead are in a meaningful way, a reflection of our personalities. And it's always a trip. And you know, the first time a CEO sees that like, oh shit, the dysfunction that, you know, my team is like arguing in this way and it's, this part isn't working. And that's really upsetting to me. Oh, look at this. I'm modeling that. And here's this weird way that I'm modeling this and creating that behavior in my people. It's like a, oh man, moment. It's a, a light bulb moment when we finally see one of those things with a client. But it's also like, it, it's, a, a lot of work, and it creates this point of, you talk about kind of the working on yourself and, and whether it's self-inquiry or whether it's, you know, you're working with a coach or something like that. That's a point of incredibly high leverage in driving organizational change, because no matter what your values are that are written down or your techniques and processes and everything else that you've created for your team, they'll follow what you do. And if you are doing things unconsciously, you're driving the results that you're driving one way or the other, but if it's unconscious, you can't change it. But if you can get conscious of the way that you're creating those results, then that gives you agency and shifting the way that you show up in the world and then that changing the results that you're, you get from your team or your business too. 
So where should leaders get started? So somebody's listening to this podcast and they're realizing like, I'm not really thinking about this right now. This is something that's important to me and I can already see the benefits. Like what, what are the first steps they can be taking? I think there's so many different answers to that. So I, I would caveat anything that I'll say about specific next steps in saying that, you know, you follow what's interesting to you. I think that like anything, if you fall in love with this process, you're going to invest in it and you're going to find the things that resonate with you and you'll make a lot more progress than if you're trying to check a box. So find the stuff that's interesting. But for me, I think what initially got me started on it is probably a couple of things. One, I got a coach. And I started working with this guy named Carl Bacciolari, who worked at an organization called Reboot. And that was my first introduction to looking at myself in a really sort of critical way and practicing. So that's one thing that you can do. I had started a meditative practice, probably it's been 15 plus years now, but I had probably been meditating for eight or nine years as, and I started to try to get calm you know, to just like feel better because I was so stressed all the time. But one of the things that you learn through meditation is, well, you, you learn an awful lot, but one one distinction is you start to see the difference between your thoughts and your emotions and yourself. You start to decouple yourself from your thoughts and your emotions and start to see the a different relationship between you and, and your thoughts and emotions. And that can open up a whole bunch of, of tools for change as well. So Things like meditation, things like uh, study, uh, things like there's various authors you can read, like Jerry Colonna, Patrick Lencioni, and folks like that are good ways to get started as well. But for me, I think the thing that started it was meditation. And it wasn't a, that wasn't the intention. It was more of a Miyagi thing. Like I started for one reason, but then when I got into it, I started benefiting in all sorts of other ways. So a common problem, we'll kind of move away from the the self-awareness talk and transition, but a common problem that I see with people that are promoted into middle management positions is they get no development. They're kind of hired as a manager. You have to figure it out on your own, which causes a lot of stress and self-doubt. The team struggles because of it. And the reality is they're doing their best, right? They have the best intentions. They want to do well. They probably want to advance even further in their career, but there's not always guidance. So if you think of some of the foundational skills that a, a new leader or even you know somebody with experience, but just who has never really had the development, what are some of the foundational skills and attributes that you see successful leaders have in common? So is this sort of like framing it like what they would, where they would aim absent any sort of, you know, internal leadership or somebody else sort of steering them? Yeah. So if, if I'm trying to figure out like what's, what skills should I be focused on developing? What are the things that are going to allow me to be effective in my role? What are some just, just foundational things that you see? You know, I think my understanding of leadership through the 20 years or whatever that I've been doing this is that there is certainly some aspect of skills development um, and that's important and, and worth dedicating time to. And, and we can spend some time on that if we want, but I'd say the predominantly larger impact has to do with how you show up as a person, less around what you do and the specific tools and techniques and whatever that you do, more around the way you're being with your people. Are you being authentic? Are you being open? That sort of a thing makes a big difference versus are you being manipulative or closed or, or things like that. So my experience with particularly young leaders is that there's often an expectation that a leader should be confident and competent and just have all their ducks in a row, be really put together and just always have the answers. That's sort of like leading from certainty place. I see that an awful lot. And I think that usually that comes from fear. Usually that comes from 
a sense that I need to have all, I need to at least appear to have all the answers. Otherwise there's a problem with what I'm doing. So I'm going to put that sort of face on. But I think that part of the leadership development process is learning to become comfortable enough with yourself that you're open to being vulnerable with your team and admitting the things that you don't know, the things that you're not confident with or that make you uncomfortable. And, you know, some people will be like, well, I can't be vulnerable with my team because then they won't follow me, right? They'll be, they'll, you know, if somebody doesn't think I know what I'm doing, then then why would they follow me? And I think I'm sure there's some truth to that. If you completely have no idea, then there's a different problem. It's definitely a competence piece that's important, but. For sure. Yeah, but more often what the issue is, a willingness to share that vulnerability and along with it to share the fact that I am committed to building this thing. So even though I don't know the answer, even though I'm scared because we're going to run out of cash or because of business, all the different reasons that fear shows up in, in business and in leadership, I don't have to hide those things. I can own my fears and my insecurities and still move forward into this great unknown, um, the sort of frontier space that leadership is. And it's that combination of vulnerability and commitment that I think is the secret sauce that I've seen for some of the really, really powerful leaders when they do it. I love that. Like your actions will reveal your heart and what your mindset is. And if you see people only as objects to advance your own career or only as objects to build your business, how you act and how you respond to them is going to show that. And they're going to feel that. And they're not going to want to work for you because they know that you don't really care about them as a person. But if you're if really your passion and what you focus on every day is helping these people get better because you value them, because you want to be there to support them, even when you're not perfect, they're going to understand these are your intentions and they're going to want to work for you. And they're, they're going to want to work harder than the other side of the, the spectrum because they understand that like they feel safe because they know you're there to take care of them. And they probably feel confident that working with you will be better for them personally as well, because you are there to support them and you're invested in their long-term success. Yeah. And I think one of the really critical, this has to do more with like the skills development piece, but one of the the really critical things that that I think is important to do as a leader is to listen really well and particularly listen to the people that you lead and not just when they're giving you feedback on what work you need to do or where they're having problems or anything like this, but listen to who they are and where they're going in life where they're going in their careers. And that becomes, and again, there's two ways of doing this. One, you can listen so that I can move the chess piece around and like just kind of half-ass listen and then tell you what to do. And people see through that, right? But if you listen because you care about a person and you want to know what's important to them, that then can become a really, really powerful tool to help guide their actions and help them to be a, the most effective member of the team that they can by aligning what they want with what the company wants. So one of the things that as a CEO, I would often think of and still do now is if this person really wants to become a professional designer down the road, that's their goal, then how do I ensure that the work that they do here gets them to that goal? And so that's, as a manager, that's my responsibility is, and I'll work with them to figure that out and to come up with a plan around that. But I'm deliberately looking for ways that they can on the clock and working for the company, do the work that helps them to get where they want to go. And then motivation becomes an entirely different, I mean, it's almost a non-issue at that point because they're doing the things that they want as opposed to the things that I or the company wants. Beautiful. And just listening, understanding their goals, just to kind of reiterate your point is just such low hanging fruit for, for a lot of managers. 
I think one example that I talked to a manager about recently is like, I have this employee that's like 10 minutes late every single day. It's not a big deal, but I want to have expectations as well. How do I handle this? And so I chatted with them. I said, like, have you asked them why they're late 10 minutes every single day? Because like, maybe there's a legitimate reason, like they have to drop their kids off at a certain time and maybe we can adjust their schedule if it doesn't really impact the business. But sometimes it just takes that initial conversation of just asking why, like what's going on, trying to understand people and the dynamics of their life, because we got a lot of stuff going on as people. Like there's a lot going on in this world beyond just our, our occupations and the things we do to pay bills. And so as leaders, if we can just understand people and really see them and try to understand why they do the things that they do, they can help us be more impactful in having conversations and creating win situations where the business wins on one side, but also people can see that they're winning as well by, by working in the organization. Mm. It's funny you were talking about the somebody's late 10 minutes all the time. One of the things that I see, so I work with, in my work today, I work primarily with CEOs and we work on leadership development broadly, but there's a whole bunch of different facets to it. And one of the dynamics that I see all the time, I think CEOs are, are often notoriously guilty of this, is being late to meetings. It's like, I got important shit that I'm doing, right? I had to do this thing with this client. I had to do whatever it is. There's always a good story. And it's always, it's interesting to to start to ask questions around that when you find somebody that's like habitually late to meetings. It's like, well, how do your employees do with accountability? How do they do when it comes down to like being specific and, and managing details? How do they do in terms of showing up on time to things? And you start to see, you can sort of unpack all the different patterns in front of them and like, oh, well, you know, there's all of these different instances where I'm pissed because my team doesn't take this seriously and doesn't do this. And, you know, it's da, 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 da. And it's like, oh, and here you are five minutes late to this meeting and it's, it's consistent. We're all here. Yeah. And I wonder where they learned that from. So as a leader, like paying real close attention to things like that for yourself, even if you might give, you know, an employee grace and, and, and listen in that way. But if you want a result, like people being serious about the details means you have to be. It gets back to the, uh, the mirror analogy used earlier where your organization is a reflection of you as a leader. Yeah. What are some common misconceptions that you see in leadership? You kind of talked about it a little bit in your own personal journey, but I'm curious to hear if there are others that you've you've learned as you're working through leaders and kind of their expectation of what leadership should look like versus the reality what's actually going to have an impact. I mean, I think we're, we're touching on it. I think that that uh, there's a big misconception about who, um, or my experiences, and, and I see this a lot about who uh, who a leader is supposed to be. I think that you know. It's oftentimes people have in their head this idea of this hard charging alpha person. Um, and some of the most effective leaders in the world don't have nothing in common with that archetype and would in fact be a much worse leader if they were trying to be that than if they were just allowing themselves to really, really anchor into who they are and, and be that fully. So I think that's certainly the part of it. And then I think another area we've touched on, but that, that when people think about leadership and practice leadership and invest in their own leadership development, the time that is spent on, you know, learning this meeting check-in template or learning this process for managing one-on-ones or whatever, the time that is spent learning like different techniques and tactics is massively dwarfs for most young leaders, the, the amount of time that's spent on understanding themselves and the impact that they have and being conscious about how they show up. And I think that as you mature in your leadership journey, and I'm sure you experienced this as well, you start to realize that like, oh, all these techniques and tricks and processes and whatever don't really mean a hill of beans until 
I'm, you know, operating consciously as opposed to, you know, out of rote and habit and emotion. I love that. I think a, a simple example would be the leader that has all the systems in place, but they're living off three hours of sleep, you know, and that you can't be at your best if you're like living off of that little sleep, even if you have everything else in process, everything else set up to yeah. perfection. Like you're just not going to be able to navigate conversations effectively and make the right decisions that you need to, you know, when you're running a company. Totally. Well, I was going to just get a follow-up question. When you're focusing on self-work, is it focused around the things somebody needs to do to be at their best or are there other levels and elements that you're looking at as part of that conversation? Well, so I think a, a good sort of starting point is that who you are right now is perfectly suited to getting the results that you're getting. So whatever results that you're getting, the way you're operating right now, the, the programs that are running in your head, the patterns and habits and everything else that you have are perfectly suited to create the life that you have. And so if the life that you have is the life that you want, cool, there's nothing really to do and enjoy that life because that's amazing. Good for you. But if, you know, where work starts and where some of the self-inquiry and, and adjustment work comes in is when you're getting results that you don't want. And so, you know, when you find that I'm getting a result, like I'm finding that my team is like arguing all the time and is not getting along and it's really frustrating because like why can't everybody just do their freaking job because this is really important stuff everybody agrees it's really important but we spend so much time bickering that we're getting less stuff done than we want to well that becomes instead of like you know looking at how do i get these people to behave differently and get them to calm down and, and be nice to each other the question becomes how am i complicit in creating that environment how am i creating the conditions for them to argue with each other all the time. And that's an entirely different line of inquiry, right? It's not external, how do I have creative conversations with these people? It's more, how am I showing up and how am I creating? So for me, what I realized, because that was a direct example of uh, my experience as a CEO, and we went through this phase where people were just like quietly stewing with each other. And it was really frustrating. I felt awful as a leader because like didn't, we weren't as effective as we needed to be. But what my coach helped me see was that I had this way of dealing with myself, which was I, if I had to do something hard, I would just like shut up and get it done. Like there's no, no point in complaining. Let's just like, just do it. Cause you know, this is, we have so much important stuff to do. I don't have time for the emotions and anything else around. I just got to go and, and get this thing done. And that showed up and, and rubbed off with my employees. They would, you know, they did experience that with me as well. And then they started to do it with each other. And so somebody would drop a ball somewhere or do something that, that wasn't as good. The person next to them would just shut up and carry it. Like, you know what? This didn't happen the right way. Cool. Who we are as people is we don't worry about that. We just get the job done. So they would get the job done. And then because they didn't feel like they could talk about, because I wouldn't talk about the emotional sort of stuff underneath that, they would carry that weight and then resent the other person. And they wouldn't say anything. And then over and over and over and over and over and over, there's all these resentments built up. And eventually it just started, like people weren't able to hold it in anymore. And the fix to that was not, had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with me starting to acknowledge pain when I caused pain and when I felt pain. And that opened up a space for other people to have similar conversations. Awesome. I'm thinking a lot about being a father as you're talking through this and like how that same element of how we handle conversations with our, our kids, like the same dynamics play out in the household that, that do in the office, but it's just like the stakes are so much higher at home that it makes it even more challenging to like sometimes do the things that you know you need to do. Yeah. 
And I think it's, you know, I find myself sometimes like becoming so conscious of, well, I don't want to, you know, I want my kids to feel like they are free to kind of, you know, live their own life and go their own directions. And so I'm so careful of like, I don't want to, I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm a huge football fan. And I'm like, if you're going to do sports, I'm super pumped, but I'm also, I don't want to like put that on you. Right. And I can be, it's funny with, as a parent, I can get so conscious of it that it can feel like debilitating almost. Like I, I really don't want to, you know, give them a complex of this sort or that sort. But I think as a parent, it's, you know, you're around them so much that like, there's, I, at this point, I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to fuck up my kids. I know I'm going to. It's yeah. just a matter of like <laughs> yeah. being yeah. conscious of, I don't want them to be in this particular way that I can see. And I know that like, if I, um, you know, if I tell them to just suck it up when they're hurt, instead of like allowing them to be hurt, then that's going to lead to a very predictable thing that I've dealt with, which is, you know, I would led to that business problem, that very specific business problem that I described. So I know that one. So I'm not going to do that, but then I'm sure I'm going to do it in a different way. And, you know, and then I'll learn and we do our best. For sure. The one I struggle with is like helping with the emotions and yeah. I want them to feel free to express the emotions, but then there's also like a line somewhere of like where it's just rude and disrespectful. Like how do we like navigate that conversation? I'm getting, my kids aren't teenagers yet, but I'm preparing myself for these moments as they're going to be experiencing how are you doing new it? emotions. You, how are that? you managing it right now? How are you managing just it right now? Cause taking I think deep breaths. I, I, and reminding my kids myself are younger. I'm, I'm trying to learn. Oh, gotcha. I'm just taking deep breaths, reminding myself that they're kids and trying to just make every moment a, an opportunity to, to listen and understand where they're at and then teaching, you know, when it makes sense. But try to do a lot of listening and understanding is 100% my perspective on, I think, probably just everything in life, but definitely parenting. For a lot of the same reasons you're talking through, like, I want my kids to have their own journey. I want them to like find the things that fill their buckets up. I don't want them to do something because they feel like it's what I want from them. I definitely have made the mistake of like of in front of them t talking about how much I didn't like baseball and now they never want to play baseball. So I don't know if it's because they don't like it or maybe like the conversation I had, you know, had an impact on that. But I let them know, like, if you want to play, I'll support whatever, whatever sport you want to do. If you want to do like music, whatever you want to do, like try it out. I'll be there to support yeah. you because I love you as a person and I want to want to be invested in your thing. So just try to listen, understand and encourage them you know, when they're excited about things and Fortnite. Definitely play Fortnite with them. <laughs> Fair enough. You said something earlier that I'm reminded of right now. And you said something like, independent of what you say, your actions uh, speak louder than that. Your actions are more important. And I wonder if how that plays into this dynamic with kids as well. And thinking about my own sons. And in that, like, I'm going to say a bunch of stuff. And I might say that I hate baseball. I also hate baseball. So, you know, I'm with you. And now I'm thinking <laughs> about whether or not I should say that. But I think at the end of the day, like, kids don't have the cognitive capacity to sort of like argue with these things and just sort of still figuring that stuff out. But over time, the thing that sticks with them is, you know, less so that like you hate baseball or not, but more so just what kind of person you are, how you spend your time, the type of you know, interactions you have with your wife, the type of interactions you have with other people. That's the stuff that they watch. And what I'd like to tell myself, and I think it's true-ish, is that independent of if I say something that I wish I could take back at some point. I think the thing that matters more is the type of person that I am and being the best version of myself as I can be. And that allows them and sort of gives them the permission to be the best version of themselves that they can be too. And it might take some work for that to feel like enough, but I think it is. Yeah, I think a lot of 
parenthood and leadership is how we handle mistakes. Like when somebody drops the ball, like those sometimes are going to be the most impactful moments of how somebody views you as a parent or views the experience of working on your team. When things are going well, like everybody can be a great leader. You know, like everybody's at their best. We're all fired up at work, giving high fives. But like when things start slipping, like right now we're in a recession. A lot of companies are struggling, trying to just stay profitable. And these are the moments that like great leaders are going to stand out and people are going to remember this, right? When they have opportunities presented to themselves. There is a particularly challenging that dynamic. And when there's this sort of existential threat that I know, and I work a lot in the tech industry and that's changed a lot. There's a lot of headwinds in the tech industry right now. And it's in navigating that sort of a challenging wartime space is extra complicated when the way that you navigate it is necessarily needs to be innovative. Because in order to innovate, you need to take risks. And in order to take risks, you need to feel safe. And so if people feel like they're under a threat and this existential, like I need to perform or else, or I need to somehow be, you know, reach this bar or else like bad things are going to happen, then innovation just right down the tube. And so there's a lot that leaders can do around how they interact with failure, how they interact with half-baked ideas, how they interact with things that whatever the external circumstances are, when somebody comes into the, to your office and says, I have this idea and here it is in some form of it, if your first reaction is to tell them all the reasons it sucks, well, that's a good sort of a indication of like that type of idea is not welcome. I need to be more buttoned up and I'm not going to want to make sure that I polish myself before I talk to my boss. And you're not going to get any sort of innovation if everybody's polished all the time. Um, so it kind of puts an additional responsibility on the leaders to not only acknowledge the any existential threats that exist, but also still create psychological safety for their people to do the work that that they need to. Hundred percent, Ryan. This has been an incredible conversation. I know I could probably chat with you for hours about about parenthood and leadership. I think we we share a lot of the same perspectives, and I always enjoy our chances to connect and people that want to connect with you. Same. Where should they go? Where should we send them? So best ways is to go, just go to our website. It's uh, leadinsideout.io. And there's a newsletter there that's uh, an easy way to sort of stay in touch. And if you subscribe to that, I end up publishing usually a pretty deep article on leadership or on the startup journey or on my own journey uh, once every other week. And and through that process, I've established a whole bunch of friendships with readers that just respond and it starts a dialogue. And we start talking about this really deep philosophical, you know, leadership topic. And I just, I enjoy the hell out of that. So yeah, subscribe to our newsletter. And then when you get one, uh, respond and let's have a conversation. I love it. Highly recommend it. Make sure you check in Brian's newsletter out and appreciate you tuning in to the Leaders Lens podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Don't miss another episode of Leaders Lens and the inside scoop on becoming a great leader. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Leaders Lens, please tell a friend.